If you spent any time in Cincinnati, you probably know the hulking white building with a tower on top that rises just west of I-75. In a city of architectural gems, the fortress-like Crosley Building in Cincinnati's Camp Washington neighborhood stands out for its size and its neglect. What might not be apparent gazing at the building is how much history making took place there. This podcast is the story of how a now empty building helped change the world and how the fate of the neighborhood around it is tied up in its construction, its boom years, its decline, and efforts to resurrect it. This is Crosley at the Crossroads, how a Cincinnati landmark mirrors the fortunes of the city. I'm Nick Swartzell. As you might guess, decades of industrial activity leave quite a residue. And the Mill Creek Valley in which Camp Washington sits is a prime example of environmental degradation and neglect. From a devastating flood and fire that destroyed the building next to the Crosby Building just a few years after it was completed, to the lingering effects of pollutants in the valley, the environment has long struggled in Camp Washington. The Crosby Building faces a number of challenges before it can be brought back to useful life, like many places in the Mill Creek Valley. Camp Washington community organizer Joe Gorman and Camp Washington Business Association President Matt Wagner talk more about the challenges ahead and the promises of a cleaner Camp Washington. There are plans to address that and to rehab buildings like the Crosby Building, but such plans often bring tension with them. When buildings get fixed up, property values rise, and sometimes long-tenured residents have a hard time keeping up. Will that be the case in Camp Washington? We're here with Joe Gorman. He's a longtime community organizer uh, in Camp Washington and in other neighborhoods like over the Rhine. And we're also here with Matt Wagner. He's the president of the Camp Washington Business Association. So we're going to talk to you first, Joe, about your history in Camp Washington, how you came here, and sort of a uh, past, present, and future of, of this neighborhood and the Crosby Building. The presence of this building in the neighborhood is something that we've always dreamed of renovating it, getting it back to life. And, and Matt can tell you about some, some of the future plans here with the, the new housing that is planned for this building. Um, so it's, but it's been, it's been, uh, it's right at I-74, I-75. So visually, it's very impactful. People driving along the highway, they see this building. So when this, when this building gets fixed up again, uh, it's going to be a really cool thing to see, you know, people driving by and seeing this beautiful building back, uh, back in life. But uh, a lot of the work that we did in, in camp over the last 20 years uh, really, uh, spe- we specialized in fixing up old buildings, houses, saving saving structures, and uh, renovate- renovating these buildings, then selling them to uh, folks coming into the neighborhood. It's been a, a predominantly an Appalachian neighborhood. A lot of people came in from the deep south in the 30s and 40s. They moved here, worked in the valve companies, the meat industry. Um, a lot of different industries were here in camp. So a lot of people moved from the deep south here. And they established their families and, and, their, and their lives here. So a lot of those folks are dying out now. We're seeing a new, a new uh, wave of, of folks moving in. Uh, a lot of young, young families moving back here. So it's cool to see that finally happen again. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to that period in time when this place was really booming, you, you, you told me a stat that kind of blew my mind about uh, the payroll contribution yeah. Camp Washington had. Camp to Washington provided 42% of the city's earnings tax in the late 40s and early 50s, which really, uh, 42% of the whole city 
which means that we had these powerhouse businesses down here. Uh, and one business down here, really, uh, Queen City Sausage. Uh, Elmer, Elmer started that, that place. Oh, it's just in a small little, little work, uh, work room. He had a sausage maker, a grinder. Uh, now Queen City Sausage is uh, an absolute an amazing place to work. They got 50 employees, let's say, and they're all from all around the world. People, uh, immigrants have moved here to work at Queen City Sausage. So you, you, you walk through the plant with Elmer and it's like people, it's like a whole uh, international uh, place to work. Yeah, which is kind of the history of Camp Washington, right? Like it's people coming from other places to find opportunity and and uh, uh, really, you know, move forward in their lives. It sounds like uh, we we talked to someone earlier uh, who Bob Story, whose neighbors were German and came here to work in Camp Washington. So that's a, that's a repeating history I'm I'm hearing is like people coming from other places to find opportunity in Camp Washington. Well, and, and to tie it in with the Crosby Building, when uh, WLW Radio, uh, they had the uh, Nation Station uh, 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 hayride upstairs on the eighth floor, and they broadcast music here. The musicians who would come into town uh, would also go to King Records and record music there. And King Records was also a very... Uh, very diverse work uh, workplace. They had all kind of folks working there, and that and that was the genius of Sid Nathan. Uh, and similar to Powell Crosby, I mean, Powell uh, was a forward-thinking person uh, with all his products. And uh, but the way he helped attract people to Camp Washington to live here and work here uh, was was a, a pretty cool thing. Yeah, yeah. Those were the boom times. Uh, Matt, I want to get to you in a minute, but I want to ask one more question to you, Joe, yeah. first. Uh, when you got here in 2001, tell us about what camp was like then. What, what, was it, what did it feel like? What did it look like? Well, the community board, the Camp Washington Community Board, was started in 1975 with the major goal of fixing up houses to save the housing stock here in camp. Uh, the community board also owned a bingo and the bingo proceeds helped us uh, fund the renovation of uh, 52, 52 houses, uh, single-family homes. Uh, we would buy the houses, or, or people would give the houses to us, or we'd write a grant for a house, and we would spend $150,000 renovating it, and then sell it for 75000 We did 52 of those buildings. We put about $8 million into camp from 2001 till now. And uh, those, those houses not only were stabilized, but they also were very impactful. C- camp only has like 1,500 people who live here. Uh, so every, every house that we would do uh, would make a big impact. So we were successful in attracting, saving, saving houses and also attracting new folks down here. Uh, because a lot of the, uh, the old Appalachians were dying off and changing. And uh, so we were able to kind of create a, a really a new neighborhood down here. And now we see the fruits of that uh, with some more uh, businesses being moving down here. And also houses. The houses are not vacant anymore. We have a really good, uh, really good housing stock here. But we, but we also need new housing too here. Can either one of you talk about this sort of like um, 
the environmental impact of previous industry in Camp Washington and along the Mill Creek Valley and like uh, that legacy? I tell you, uh, the, the Collins factory was here and uh, oh, when they were, Matt, matter of fact, Matt, Matt Lafkus was, uh, he was over there working in the field one day and they were, they were tearing down buildings and they, they happened to hit a tank that was buried in the ground. And this thing, when it, when it ruptured, the entire neighborhood, I swear to God, it was like uh, this, way, this invisible wave of nausea oh. came through the neighborhood. Oh, like, what in the hell is in that tank? Yeah. And, uh, but that place had all kind of, and Matt, you know all, all that stuff. But yeah, it's, it's been a lot of, uh, a lot of cleanup down yeah. here. Yeah, before the regulations uh, took place, then there, there was a lot of hazardous waste just being disposed of in, I would say, less than right conditions. So yeah, there's been a lot of cleanup that's happened here in camp and uh, ultimately for the better. Yeah, yeah. I got to go back a minute. What was in that tank? Do you know? Uh, I think it was like some some parts of animals or oh, whatever. I don't oh, know. Yeah, I'm sorry. I asked, actually. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> You're hoping gasoline, but uh, yeah, yeah. that was not what it was. <laughs> well, and there are, there are still wells here around camp uh, or in camp that uh, it used to be a railroad cleaning site right over across the street yeah. near Reliable Castings and uh, CSX. Yeah. And they, they, they come here every week and they, they open up these little 12-inch pipes and they, they pull stuff out of the ground, gasoline, kerosene, whatever. So there's a lot of that cleanup. That's why that we have a, this big car impound lot here. You really can't build on that until that's clean. So they, they use it for car impoundment. Gotcha, so, yeah. So a lot of remediation that's been done, a lot of cleanups that's been done, a lot still to come, it sounds like. Yeah, the, the Cal brands, uh, Cal bought the old Pal Crosby, or, or not Pal Crosby, um, Pal Valve building. Yeah. And that's been an ongoing cleanup. They took that building down after years of study, cleaning, whatever. So that's now is going to be part of their campus, which is an amazing company. And uh, it's, a, it's going to be an amazing facility. But that was, again, the cleanup down here is just, it's just amazing that, yeah. it has, had, that has happened here. Yeah. So uh, I'll ask you first, Joe, and then you, Matt. What what do you want to see for the future in camp? Uh, and and you know what what do you envision when you when you picture an ideal situation for this building? Uh, and then and then broaden that out to the community as a whole. I think once this building gets online with people living in here, people wanting to do stuff around the neighborhood, volunteering or just hanging out, playing, um, uh, working, uh, and, and since the pandemic struck the whole work employee coming to a factory, all that pretty much changed. So I, I, I like this. I would like to see uh, individuals work here, play here and thrive here. Uh, Cause it's a central location to everywhere in town. And uh, it's just got a, a cool old vibe to it that uh, I would love to see new energy coming here and meet with a with the old historical vibe. It'd be a pretty cool place to be. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Matt? Yeah, first I'd like to see it, like Joe said, the building revitalized, so we're not having to worry about glass on the sidewalks and neighbors complaining. 
you know, for seeing people coming into the building and is the building secure enough? You know, I think, um, you know, we've had to weather that storm here for 20 years, yeah. at least for me, 15 years. Yeah. So that'll be, that'll be great. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I envision, uh, a very walkable community. I see uh, a lot of bikes being used. I see hopefully more, um, you know, light traffic, you know, in terms of folks, you know, coming here as a destination, uh, maybe before a soccer game or before the Bengals came and, you know, having different parties and doing different things here in camp instead of working here and then going somewhere else. So we're really excited for that vision. Um, and that is what I see. I see that this being a very livable community. Questions about what happens after a neighborhood starts drawing more attention and investment are nothing new. Could it lead to gentrification in Camp Washington? University of Cincinnati history professor Dr. David Stradling and Ann Delano Steiner discuss. I think any any place is at risk if um, if there's enough. I, you know, I've I've been surprised at how much gentrification has happened in Cincinnati because I couldn't have imagined that the market for was that big. Um, but the gentrification in Over the Rhine has been so complete um, and continues. The gentrification of Walnut Hills has been very rapid for, you know, things don't happen in Cincinnati very quickly. Um, <laughs> Northside, the, gent the gentrification has been yeah. remarkably complete as well. Um, the question is that, is the, is the infrastructure here and the architecture in this neighborhood attractive enough for the next wave? Which is to say, it is it has lots of qualities that are attractive to um, to arts folks. Um, it, it is funky. The question is, well, will the next, you know, will the middle class folks find that attractive? And my guess is probably not. I actually think Good. there's another source <laughs> for that next wave, though. Uh -huh. I think, um, having lived on the East Coast myself quite a while, I think that there are people who are interested in moving to places in the Midwest um, to get away from some of the hassles of the East Coast. I mean, the New York City, where I lived, is incredibly expensive, right? And you put up with that because there's so much great stuff that you get. But once you get hit by a hurricane, mm -hmm. you know, every five years and you're wiped out and you have to, you know, go find a new apartment or all your stuff is ruined, I think that people on the East Coast particularly due to global warming, but for other reasons as well, economic reasons as well, are starting to look around and see like, oh, well, wait, where else could I have this same kind of quality of life, walkability, bike, bike everywhere, funky arts and culture, but not the hassles of these big Eastern cities. And so I actually think that there's a potential for a pretty significant um, transplant movement to, to show up and decide that this ruined factory is really sexy and amazing to them. Oh, well, I, th I definitely agree that, that a building like this, this is one of the architectural gems of the neighborhood, but there aren't that many here. So I, one, one wonders, you know, how, 
how intense the gentrification will be. Although I really, I do think we should run with the idea of, a, of climate migration because I do think that over the next few decades, there will be a lot of people who simply can't afford to live in Florida any longer because the insurance is, is much too high. Um, the cost of building buildings that will resist the storms will be much too high. Um, Cincinnati is, is attractive in that way. And we didn't, we skipped over the flood of 37, but oh, one did, of the yes. things that we, we might emphasize is that there have been engineering projects in Cincinnati that do make us somewhat less vulnerable to the kinds of extreme weather that will adversely affect places like Florida or any coastal city. Um, that the dam that they built at the near the mouth of the Mill Creek will mean that there won't be a repeat of the kind of coming the water coming up from the Ohio River from the flood of 37, that won't happen again. So the, the question is, will we have the kinds of downpours that will make the Mill Creek flood in and of itself? Um, and right. that is a risk. And I, I know that's something that MSD and, and other key players in, in the Valley have been working on to make certain that when we get high water in the, in the Mill Creek, that, it's, that it doesn't threaten um, the development that takes place along the river. I talked last year to some people uh, who were kind of early climate migrants to Cincinnati, and one of them lived in Camp Washington. So it's not unheard of that that could happen. Well, know? and if you're used to living in a really big city, you probably don't live in Manhattan. You probably live in Queens or Brooklyn, right? right? And and those are a lot of converted industrial neighborhoods. So this actually looks familiar and even maybe more attractive than the place you came from. Um, so it's the kinds of things where you know, you were talking about kind of suburban Cincinnatians maybe wanting to come back into the city. Some of them are nervous about places like Camp Washington. Are they safe? You know, what what happens here at night? Those kinds of things. And I think if you just moved here from Greenpoint, this, it doesn't seem like that to you at all. Yeah, yeah. I've got one last uh, question. So um, if everything goes according to plan and this building gets the low-income housing tax credits they're applying for, uh, they're going to be building housing for about 50% AMI. Um, it's my understanding, it's like 35000 a year, something like that. How important is that kind of housing right now in the city? Hugely important. Cincinnati has an incredible lack of affordable housing. They're just, I mean, people are just struggling tremendously to find housing that they can afford. And that has to do a lot with the kinds of gentrification that David was talking about, that there are neighborhoods that used to be affordable that are just no longer an option for those kinds of families. Yeah, and so there's there's gentrification that happens in, in places like Walnut Hills and, and over the North Rhine that, that in Northside that will make um, make it harder for people to find affordable housing in those places. But I also note that um, you know Cincinnati, like other cities that have uh, large institutions that need room to grow, um, there's mm -hmm. also a lot of demolition of affordable housing near those institutions, near UC, near the hospitals. That lots of units have been lost um, that otherwise would have served that the low-income market. And I will say that there's also the problem that, that people who own buildings very often simply decide to leave them empty um, and wait for them to be worth um, demolishing and redeveloping rather than go through the effort of making them available to low-income residents, right? Not participating in Section 8. They simply let their housing um, become vacant and demolish it. Uh, just wait until, um, you know, something else comes around. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think 
the the like affordable housing question is super important. And I, I think there's a there's a niche in that question about sort of the moderate income housing, like that, that a building like this would have yeah. that, that kind of like missing middle. Right. Um, and, and is that really important right now in this moment in Cincinnati? So, you know, to, to me, those people are like the do-gooders in a community, right? So that's your teachers, your social workers, your nurses. Um, and, and having a situation where, for example, my son's teachers in a Cincinnati public school all commute in from the suburbs and have no idea what the neighborhood around the school is like or what his daily experience living in that neighborhood is like really makes them less good at their job. So I think that creating space in cities for that, those sort of do-gooder, middle-income folks, um, you know, social service people, is, is super important to the, the functioning of urban communities. When David started talking about the way that city, um, sorry, universities and hospitals sort of are clearing out space around their campuses and we're losing those low or even middle-income units, Unfortunately, they're being replaced with stuff which is antithetical to urban life, right? Sure. That's, that it's, we have these kind of suburban parents who are sending their kids into the big bad city to go to college, and they are looking for housing that is suburban, you know, almost anti-urban, that it's these um, quickly thrown together apartment buildings that where everything happens in the building, right? And so there's there's lounge spaces and, there, you know, if there's a little, like, life going on within the building to keep students from going out for tacos or interacting with the high school kids across the street. Sure. So it's, yeah. it, it, it's that sort of decision about how to reuse space. Sure, it's good for universities. They get wealthier, a wealthier student population, coming to their university, but it doesn't in, it, they, those buildings don't have storefronts. They, they have, they take up lots of room with big parking lots. They're not helpful to the way that cities run best. Uh, is there anything else that pops into mind that you want to say? I, about? I think if they want to rent this place out, they're going to have to put in windows and heat. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, that's, a good that's part of the, in plan. the plans, part of the plan, <laughs> yeah. maybe. Recent grants and a proposed redevelopment of the Crosby Building could mean remediation and full-scale rehab of the site for residential use. In the next episode, we'll talk about what that could look like. This podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nick Swartzell. Editor, recording engineer, and assistant producer is Josh Elstro. Original music is by Josh Elstro and Leo Mercia. This is a project created by Action Tank USA, a nonprofit partnering with artists to research and promote public policy solutions at the local government level. Action Tank proudly presents this project in partnership with our marketing partner, WVXU, Cincinnati's local NPR affiliate. This project was made possible with the generous support of the Greater Cincinnati Foundation and the W.E. Smith Foundation.